In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we're going to continue with John chapter 7, and we finished verse 36 last week. So we'll start with verse 37. All right. So we'll take just a little section to get us going, and uh, it's going to be a dense little section. So just the next three verses, the th- 37, 38, and 39. All right. So... On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Alright, so there's... A lot there. <laughs> but before we talk about the significance of what Christ says here, let's go back to look at the context of this passage. Right? The context of this feast and, and what it's all about. Right? So, who can remind us what this feast is all about? The Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths? Okay, very good, right? So they're celebrating God's provisions during this period. And, you know, they remember how God provided for their, their needs. He quenched their thirst. And we spoke about how the rock followed them and the rock gave them this water, which was Christ. And the way that they reflect on God's provisions and giving them this water, that the priest would go to the pool of Siloam and get a little bowl of water and they'd go to the altar and there would be some holes in this bowl, and he would also have a bowl of wine as well, and so uh, the wine and the water would drip from the altar down into the whole temple. Right? So they're celebrating God's provisions for them throughout their wanderings in the desert. Right? We know that that was their focus, okay? and, and that water was really central to this whole celebration, because water is a source of life. It's not just a symbol of life, it is the source of life. Like without water, we can't live. All right, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, we know that St. Paul makes this connection very clear for us. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, so there's no doubt about that. All right, now, when does Christ actually say these words? Right. When does he actually address the people in this passage? Right? And what's the significance of the timing when he says these words in this passage? The last day of the feast. What's the significance about that? You're two for two right now, so at least you're trying. You're working with me. Everybody else, they're asleep. <laughs> What happens in the first period, or actually throughout the entirety of the feast? Right, and the priest is constantly doing this, right? In the, the water, to the altar, and so on. Now what happens on the last day, or the eighth day? That stops. Okay? So, I, I want you to like look at the context, because as soon as the flow of water stops. Christ stands and He says, 
if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? So it's not coincidental that he says these words at this time. Right? So he says this on the eighth day, which is the Sabbath, right? the time of rest, when all rituals of the water cease. Okay? Because he is our true rest. He is the true Sabbath. And he is the source of this living water. Right? So the beauty of the timing here is that Christ is making it very clear that I am fulfilling what this whole feast is all about. Like I am the fulfillment of this celebration. Right? Everything that was foreshadowed in the past is now fulfilled in me. Right? And remember, they all drank this water. That's why the bowl with the holes would drip and fill the entire temple, the whole temple. Right? So that it reminds us how Christ came to give this water to everyone. Right? It's like this all-inclusive message. Right? Anyone who thirsts can come to me and drink. Right? And so, this is the reality of Christ's life as a whole. Right? His nature is one of love and providence. And we see this even in John's vision, whenever he sees in Revelation how this water flows from the throne of God. And notice too that John is the only one who mentions how water flows from the side of Christ on the cross. So John's making it very, very clear for us. So in John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and what? And water. No one else highlights this out of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke don't mention it. Right? But John wants to make it very clear. Christ is the source of living water. Right? And not just by proclaiming it in these words here, whenever the water sees and he comes and shouts out, while standing too. Right? And so th- this is significant because typically the position of authority when you preach is seated. Right? He even stands because he wants to project his voice. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so it's not just mentioned by mere words, but this is expressed by his own sacrifice. Right? So in a sense, he puts his money where his mouth is. He literally gives us his life and this water pours from his side on the cross. And then, like I just mentioned, we see that this is the eternal nature of Christ. For God to give us this water for eternity. Right? So we see that this great day, the Passover, like where Father John Bear explains, the next great day is the Passover Sabbath day following the crucifixion. This is in John 19.31. That it was still dark on the first day of the week means that it was still on this same great day that Mary Magdalene found the tomb empty. That's in John 20 verse 1. Thus, as Hodges puts in, he's referencing another scholar, in the theology of this gospel, the last day signifies the day of resurrection for believers, and hence the day of their glorification. As John 7, 38, which is what we just read, looks forward to a promised time when the rivers of living water shall flow. So also does John seven thirty nine. the Spirit was not, because Jesus was not yet glorified. For believers in Jesus are yet to receive the Spirit which they receive in the resurrection 
on the eighth day. Right? That's why we see this fulfilled on this specific day. Right? And so there's this deeper significance in what we see in this passage that it's not just about the fulfillment at this time, but what will come. Right? What will come in the cross and what will come for eternity. So Craig Keener says, John's reference to the last day of the feast as the last day, the great one, is one of his typical double entendres with an implied eschatological significance. So this eschatological significance is what we see in Revelations as well. So in Revelations 22, the scriptures tell us, whenever John is witnessing this vision, that he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And a little bit later, in verse 17, in the same chapter, chapter 22, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Right, so John is illustrating this as the reality of Christ. Right? The past, the present, and the future. This is the nature of Christ as the people in the wilderness witnessed in um, their wanderings. And also as he testifies here, whenever the water sees and he says, I am the living water. And also in the future, in, in eternity, in this vision that John witnesses in Revelations, that this water flows from the throne of God, the Lamb of God. Okay? So it's a beautiful concept. And now, this is a big deal because water was also scarce in a practical sense, right? Not just the symbol of water as life, but he's not just satisfying a trivial need, he's satisfying a real need for the people, right? Right now, we don't really thirst for long. Whenever we thirst, like right now, I have a bottle of water in front of me, I haven't even opened it, but as soon as I get thirsty... Just open it, drink it, and that's it, right? And that's pretty much how we all live, right? Water is readily available for us. But for the people at this time, water was scarce, right? They didn't have refrigerators, they didn't have plumbing systems. You would have to go to the well. You would have to keep the water preserved in a way to keep it clean. And if you've ever gone to poor villages, and you see even now how... Water is scarce in different areas of the world, in third world countries, right? You remember that, wait, like, we take it for granted how readily available water is for us, right? But if you could witness that in our time and, and day, imagine how it was 2,000 years ago, right? So in this specific passage, in, in, in this celebration, their prayers were to recognize God's providence for rain, to provide them this water. Right? So this feast was always right before spring. Okay? It was right before the rainy season. And a lot of different Jewish traditions highlight the, the timing of this specific celebration so that they pray for the rain and the, the provisions of, of God to give them this water. Why? Because it was necessary for their life. Okay? So, 
the rain was indicative of God's provisions, and you could possi possibly think of the inverse in the same way as well, that whenever they had no rain, or at the time of a drought, that they considered this as God's distance from them as well. Right? So that when rain was absent, they would consider their own sinfulness as the cause because of God's absence and because of their own sinfulness. So just to explain this from the scriptures, in Leviticus 26 verses 3 and 4, the scriptures tell us, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Okay, and in Deuteronomy 28, we see all of the blessings of obedience. And then in verse 12, the Lord will open to you His good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain of your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. Okay, so you see that rain is a product of God's blessings. right? And that was a part of their focus here in this passage. Like, we're recognizing God's provisions and giving us this rain, giving us this water to provide for our crops, to provide for drinking, to provide for all of our needs of life, right? But what happens when the people forsake the Lord? Right? You see the exact opposite, right? So in Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart, for the abundance of everything, therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and in thirst, in nakedness and in need of everything. Right? So there's clearly this focus on the presence of God providing water in the absence of God leaving us in a drought. Does that make sense? I think it's very clear. And, and that's actually common knowledge for the people celebrating this feast at this time because they're expecting the rain and the water to come. Like for us, we just read through this and it may not really click, right? But this was common knowledge for the people at this time. Right? Now, this is all to recognize the context of Christ's words at this time. Because as the people are thinking about God's provisions and the rain and this specific season, and then the ritual of the priest pouring this water throughout the temple ceases, and then Christ stands and says, I am the living water. Like a light bulb clicks in their mind. Everybody that's listening to this recognizes that, wait, there's something deeper to this whole event. Alright, so let's look at what St. Augustine says here about the, the thirst of the people as they would anticipate the rain and the provisions of God and you know they had this thirst that we take for granted but for them it was very real and so the scriptures really speak to the thirst of the people whenever Christ is talking about himself as the living water so he says where does this river in you come from remember your former dryness I mean, if you had not been dry, you would not have been thirsty. If you had not been thirsty, you would not have drunk. 
What do I mean when I say, if you had not been thirsty, you would not have believed in Christ? Unless you had discovered how empty you were, you would not have believed in Christ. Before saying rivers of living water will flow from his belly, he first said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. The reason you'll have a river of living water is that you drink. You do not drink if you are not thirsty. Okay? So in a sense, when we drink the the divine water, God doesn't eliminate our thirst, but actually increases it. Right? So... As the people celebrate this feast and you know, th- their thirst is, is pressing and, and aching, Christ is telling them, if you're thirsty, that's good because I have the water to quench your thirst. Right? But unless you recognize that thirst, you have no need for water. Right? And so Christ himself is highlighting the, the need for that thirst. Okay? In Sirach, Chapter 24, verse 21, it speaks of wisdom, which is Christ. He says, those who eat me will hunger for more, and those who drink me will thirst for more. And so here's the irony. Like, is that, that paradox that the more I taste Christ, the more I feed on Christ, the hungrier I get. And the more I drink from His water, the thirstier I get, the more I desire and that's beautiful because who doesn't want to desire God more? Like, you know, after you have a big full meal, like especially if you had like all you could eat sushi or whatever, <laughs> I don't want to think about food for the next week. <laughs> right? But whenever you have like a good meal of Christ, like you just want more. Right? Think about how people always feel whenever they come back from missionary trips. Talk to somebody after they just come back from a service trip. What's all on, on their mind. Like, I just want to serve some more. Like, I want to spend the rest of my day reading the Bible. Like, they're still filled with, like, that spiritual fuel. They're thirstier than they were, even though they just had a big dose of Jesus. But all they want is just more and more and more. It's basically how it works in our spiritual life. And so the more you eat, the hungrier you get. And the more you drink, the thirstier you get. Okay? And so... This theme of thirst permeates the prayers of the Psalms and, and it kind of reflects the mind of David as he reflected on, on the spiritual food and, and this living water. Okay, in Psalm 42, David says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? And again, in Psalm 63, David says, O God, you are my God, early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you, in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. So there's this thirst and this longing heart in in the prayers of David, and that's basically how every Christian should live. And so the question that we got to ask ourselves is, how much do I thirst for God? And, and just as we feel that hunger pain, or we feel that, that ache in, in our stomachs when we're thirsty, and we, that, that thirst is like pressing on our hearts, 
how much does that press on us in a spiritual sense? And that's, so that's the question we have to ask ourselves. And everybody has to answer that question in, in their own way. Do, do I feel thirsty for God throughout the day? Just as I wake up, first thing I want to do is I want to have breakfast. And if I didn't have breakfast by lunchtime, I'm starving. And if I had just a little lunch, I get home from work and I just want to have a big dinner. But think about that in a spiritual sense. How much do I really thirst for God? And how much do I recognize His, His living water as the true nourishment for my soul? Okay? So, any comments or questions about that? As I pause to actually get a sip of water. <laughs> No comments? All right. So, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. All right, now, this doesn't allude to a certain verse, because he's referencing the scriptures, but he's not referencing a specific verse. But... More so, the entire theme of the scriptures which illustrate how water flowing from God will quench the thirst of the people, right? Will quench the thirst of those who believe in Him. Okay, so in Zechariah chapter 14, we see a similar illustration of this in verses 17 and 18. If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. And if the family of Egypt do not go up to, the, to present themselves, then upon them shall come the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. Right, so there's this constant theme of the life of worship for the believers will warrant them this gift of water. Right? If I come to the Lord... The scriptures testify that he will quench our thirst. And the inverse is true as well. And so this is what Christ is referencing. Not necessarily like a specific verse, but the entire theme of the scriptures that explain this. Alright, now, what is the product of drinking this water? Hmm? So when I come to receive this water, what happens? Okay, so he is definitely talking about the Holy Spirit. So we are filled with the Holy Spirit in, in drinking this water. But in a practical sense, before we get to that, because in verse 39 there's a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. In a very simple way, we quench our own thirst, but we also provide for the needs of others, right? We provide them water, right? We become a spring of living water for others, right? So, there's... Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that in verse 38, it just brings my mind to David and Psalms. And, like, when we read the Psalms, that brings us comfort. So, like, from him, because he believed, he flowed 
Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Like his own experience with God, and as much as he was filled, like the outpouring, the overfilled heart of David, produced all of the psalms and these prayers, and in terms they fill us. So you're right on. Now, the only way we can give something is if we have it. Right? You cannot possibly give what you do not have. Like you don't need to be Christian to believe that, right? I can't give you $10 if I don't have $10. Right? So I can't give you water if I don't have water. Right? So in this sense, unless I am filled, then I can't provide this very same gift to others. And notice that the, the imagery here is, is interesting because this water flows from the very depth of the believer. Right, so there's a very poor translation because it says, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. I'm curious to see what the Arabic says. Anybody have the Bible in Arabic? What does it say? Min Right, so it doesn't say min elbu. But exactly. So that's a more accurate translation. Because the Greek is kolies, which literally means like the belly or the womb. So it's to indicate how the presence of this water comes from the very depth, like the womb. Right? And so it's only when I am filled to my very depth that this water can overflow. Right? A, a cup doesn't overflow until it's overfilled. Right? And so the Christian does not overflow unless he is overfilled. And that's what this passage is communicating to all of us. And you know the people that are overfilled. You know the people that are constantly just pouring out that peace and that joy. It doesn't mean they're just reciting verses all day long. That's not what it means to be overfilled. It means they're connected to God. It means they have a real relationship with God. It means they're constantly praying. And you can sense that spirit of prayer, that spirit of peace. Like St. Seraphim Osar says, Attain the spirit of peace, and what? A thousand souls around you will be converted. Right? And that's because that spirit of peace will overflow from your heart. Okay? So... Think of it like a river that flows on a hill, okay? If you've ever been in, in a valley, you see that rivers will basically flow from a higher elevation, okay? And in, in some cases, you'll even see a waterfall, right? Now, when do you typically see the waterfall flowing? When there's a lot of rain, right? Whenever the, the rivers are filled and then there's enough water to flow down this waterfall, right? And like I remember visiting uh, Zion National Park, one of my most favorite places in the world, and we go to see the Virgin River there. And year after year, it gets drier and drier and drier. And then you see the waterfalls that were like gushing out water years ago, now they're completely dry. 
There's like no waterfall at all, right? But whenever there's heavy rain, then the rivers are overfilled and then it flows down. You see this waterfall and then it provides water for the valley, it provides water for the plants, it provides water for the animals, for everyone that's in the valley, right? A Christian has to reflect that river at, at this elevation, right? And the water is available. Like right now, we're at the mercy of the weather. <laughs> if it rains, we get water. If it doesn't rain, we're out of luck. And we know how much we really are out of luck in California. <laughs> but with God, it's different. The water is always available. It's at the altar. It's here in Bible study. It's in the corner of my room whenever I have a moment to just stand with my igbeya. It's at my desk whenever I can just open my Bible and read. Right? It's at the time of my drive when I can just put on a few psalms or listen to a sermon or whatever. Like All of those opportunities that I have to interact with God. And the more I interact with God, the more I am filled. And then this river starts to flow. Then you get this waterfall and everybody enjoys a good waterfall. Okay? And that's how a Christian should live his life. Okay? Origen says, He who believes in him has not only a well, but also wells, like several wells. Not only springs, but also rivers within him. But the springs and rivers are not those that comfort this mortal life, but that bestow immortality. Right? So, we're not just providing for some trivial needs whenever Christ is overflowing from our hearts. We're providing grace, we're providing comfort, we're providing encouragement, right? And that's eternal life. We should be giving Christ, which is salvation, to the whole world, right? And keep in mind that he's not saying, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart may flow rivers of living water, or could flow rivers of living water, but shall flow rivers of living water. That's what shall happen. That's what will happen. Right? So if I believe, that's what shall happen. If I am truly living in Christ, that's what will happen. And so you think about whether that's really happening in our lives or not. Think about whether this river is flowing from our hearts and providing for the needs of the world. Any comments or questions about that? You guys have been awful quiet. Yeah, how does it read? Right, that's perfect. Yeah. And and it it still doesn't capture exactly what Christ is saying, but it's definitely closer, like from their from within, from their depth, right? But now to think of it as like from their womb, right? It's like the the very, very depth of the individual. Okay. Okay, so what is this living water? Right, he said this about what? 
Look at verse 39. And I, I know we started to allude to this a little bit earlier. About the Spirit. Good. So, this living water is the Holy Spirit. St. Irenaeus says, The Spirit is in all of us. And He's the living water that the Lord supplies to those who rightly believe in Him and love Him. Okay? This living water is the Holy Spirit. And St. Ambrose says, What wonder is it if the Holy Spirit is the throne of God, since the kingdom of God itself is the work of the Holy Spirit? Okay? That, that's the wonder here. Right? That the throne of God is the Holy Spirit. Since the kingdom of God itself is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, to say that this river is a river of living water, is to say that this is like a dynamic substance. Okay? The Holy Spirit is not static. Notice he didn't say there will flow rivers like the waters in a lake. <laughs> right? Um, I, I love going up to Lake Tahoe, and it's one of my favorite places, but, you know, it's not really like the ocean. It's not really like rivers with waterfalls and rapids and stuff like that. So, what he's trying to say by alluding to the, the living water is to say that this is running, flowing water. There's movement. There's a dynamic life in the Spirit. Right? And even whenever we talk about the stillness that we have in the spiritual life, even that stillness provides an opportunity for the Spirit to work, right? for the Spirit to move our hearts, to gravitate us towards God. So the Spirit is always working in a dynamic way. Right, to challenge us and to give us a fresh new look at our life and to, to perceive different ways that God is communicating to us. Right? That's what the life of the Spirit is all about whenever we think of the dynamic nature of the Spirit. Okay? So, what does it mean to say that Jesus was not yet glorified? And, and why is it that the Spirit is not given till Jesus is glorified? Okay. Well, 40 days after He was ascended, after the resurrection, 50 days after we received the Holy Spirit. But what is He talking about in this glorified? Crucified, okay. And to go to the Father, okay. So you're all right, because he's talking about the entire work of salvation. The glory of Christ, in its core, is the crucifixion. Like when he is lifted up on the cross, that is, we say that the throne of God is the cross, right? But right now he's talking about the totality of the salvation He gives us in His cross, His resurrection, and His ascension. That is all the work of His glory altogether. Right? So it's not until He's glorified when He's crucified, resurrected, and ascended. It's critical that we stress that part as well, the ascension, that He can send us the Holy Spirit. Right? Because we can't receive the Holy Spirit until 
Christ is ascended and takes him from the Father who is the source and the Son, Christ, delivers the Spirit to us. Okay? Now, I want you to think about humanity after the fall. Alright? What did we lose? We lost everything. Perfect answer, actually. <laughs> um, but not, not exactly. We didn't lose literally everything. Um, in a sense, God was still around, right? So we, we didn't lose His presence in, in an absolute sense. But we lost His internal dwelling, right? And so the Spirit of God did not dwell in humanity after the fall because humanity was corrupted, right? We fell, our nature was corrupted. And so our hearts filled with sin were not an appropriate place for the dwelling of God, right? Like you can't think of the King of Glory sitting in a dump, right? Same way, after we fell and our nature was corrupted, we separated ourselves from God, right? Now, what had to happen for us to receive the dwelling of the Spirit? Okay, so what did that do for us? Okay, but more specifically in our nature. Right. Right, exactly. So then this corrupted nature that fell was now restored to its former nature. Right? So that's why the work of Christ is all about restoration. Right? So this nature that was incompatible with the purity of God could no longer contain the, the perfect purity was now restored to a proper place. Right? That's what baptism does. Right? In baptism, the old man is put to death, and the new man comes to life. We have a fresh new vessel, right? That is now fit for the presence of a king. And so, what Christ did in his incarnation is that he baptized all of humanity, right? So he assumed human nature, put to death the old man, and resurrected the new man, right? And so, after his resurrection. Now we are enabled to receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, we have a nature that can contain the presence of God. Not just in the way that God dwelt upon the, 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 the prophets when they prophesied in the Old Testament, but to actually dwell within humanity. Does that make sense? And so that's what baptism does. Right? And so... In our baptism, the old man is put to death, the new man comes to life, and then in the chrismation we say, okay, now I have a fresh new vessel that is fit for the presence of a king. And then in chrismation we receive the Holy Spirit. Right? And so when you think of what Christ did here, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified, indicates to us that the Spirit was not yet given because humanity was not yet restored through the glorification of Christ when He was crucified Resurrected and ascended. Does that make sense? Yes. I have a question. So, before he ascended, he told his disciples, 
Yes. So yes. We always had, a, had, had need for the Holy Spirit, but we could not have been equipped with a, a proper place to receive Him until our nature was restored. So throughout His life, He was working to accomplish that so that in due time, when He is crucified, resurrected, and ascended, then He can send us the Holy Spirit. But even though like the disciples who were living with Him um, and walked with him, and, and they had communion with him. Like they still needed the Holy Spirit, and and to prove that, like it wasn't until that they received the Holy Spirit that their minds were opened, even though they walked with Christ all along. Right? And then you know, Peter, who always doubted and he denied Christ. It wasn't until he received the Holy Spirit he gives one sermon, and thousands of people are converted. Right, just by one sermon. And so you see that the, all of the apostles reflect the same transition. Does that answer the question? Yeah, any other comments or questions about that? Alright, so I want to share with you what St. Cyril of Alexandria says about this specific event. The Spirit came to be in the prophets so that they could prophesy, and now the Spirit dwells in believers through Christ, having first dwelt in Christ when He was made man. Okay, so I want to pause right there. When He united with our human nature, right, through His incarnation, and He was baptized, right, the Spirit found a fitting place in, in a perfect human being, and that's why in His baptism, He was filled with the Holy Spirit as a man. Right? Even though He is God, and He is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Right? So, He says, As God, Christ has the Spirit unceasingly, since the Spirit is essentially of Christ's nature. The Spirit is His own. Right? Christ is anointed and is said to receive the Spirit as a man, not so that He could participate in the divine good things, but rather for our sake and for the sake of the human nature as we have been taught. When the evangelist says to us, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified, let us understand Him to mean the full and complete indwelling of the Holy Spirit in humankind. Okay? So, he's just reiterating how the work of Christ in its totality, His baptism, and Him receiving the Spirit on our behalf as, as a man, and then in His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension, all of that, the entire life of Christ, is what sets the stage for us to finally have a fitting place to receive the Holy Spirit. That make sense? Okay. Comments, questions? No? Alright. So, let's go to the next few verses. Verses 40 to 44. Therefore many of the crowd, when they heard the saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Alright, so, again we find another debate here. Okay, there's a disagreement between the people. And so St. Cyril says, they're persuaded by the words of the Savior to marvel at him, and yet, without guidance from their rulers, they're taken along a many branching path of ideas. Some call him and now believe him to be the Christ, others that he's the prophet. Right, so there's this confusion lurking among them, right, because they're misguided. Okay? And St. Cyril goes on to say that their efforts were commendable, because they're trying to search the scriptures. Right? They're trying to question the validity of his words, right? to really assess the character of this person who clearly claims to be the Messiah. So it's commendable that they're questioning, because they're trying to find the truth. Right? But they're still misguided because there are holes in their understanding of the scriptures. Okay? He says, they were led astray and failed to find Christ merely on account of Nazareth. Right? That's what tripped them up. Right? They failed to find Christ merely on account of Nazareth, which was situated in Galilee. It was common knowledge that our Lord was brought up there. They had not known that he had been born in Bethlehem of Judea of the Holy Virgin, who was of the seed of David, for she was of the tribe of Judah by descent. Merely knowing that our Lord was brought up at Nazareth, they fall away from the truth and lack sound reasoning. Okay, so it's interesting that they're asking the right questions, right, and they're trying to really understand the truth, right? Some claim him to be the prophet, right? And, and that's a testimony of faith because they believe the prophet to be the Messiah, right? This is what Moses said. There will come the prophet, not just another one of the prophets, but there will come the prophet, and he is the one who will speak the word of God, right? And, and that's the Messiah himself. So these are the people that believe, these are the people that said, this is the Christ. So some of them clearly believe, not, not, not just one of many prophets, right? Not, not an imposter, but the prophet and the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Right? Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the seed of David? So they suppose that yes, he's going to come from Bethlehem, from the tribe of David, but they forget that Galilee was still like where Nazareth was situated, right? So just because he grew up as, as a Nazarene, they overlooked how like the entirety of the scriptures still testify of um, his, his origin as the Messiah from the tribe of David because of his mother Mary. They knew all of this stuff. So all this to say that it's important for us to know what we're talking about. <laughs> because they're trying to reference the scriptures and to argue on the basis of their knowledge of the scriptures. But there's a big deficiency in the debate because they're missing critical components. right? And so when we come to look at the Bible, it's good for us to know the entirety of the context and to know the scriptures as a whole. Not to just take one verse out of context and then 
to just use that and distort the whole message. And so what they were doing here is they were not taking the entirety of the scriptures and that's clear because there were holes in, in their rationale. Right? So in verse 43, there was a division among the people because of him. And that's not new. There's divisions among the people throughout this whole chapter and the previous chapter as well. Until now. Right? And, and that's exactly what I wanted to, to highlight from what we see here. Like, as much as Christ wants to unite us, the truth will inevitably cause divisions from the fallacies in the world. Right? And there's no way for us to reconcile the truth with the lies. You can't reconcile the light with the darkness. And so long as we abide by a certain truth, then we are opposing whatever is contrary to that truth. Right? And so we saw this at the time of Christ and throughout the previous centuries until now. Right? So it's important for us to recognize that and to come to terms with that. Right? And to try to be as united in the truth as much as possible and to recognize that you know, the, the world will oppose the truth and that's what we have to, to live with. Okay? And again, no one laid hands on him. Why? His time has not yet come. Right? It doesn't mention that literally here, but some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Right? But we know in the previous passage that St. John makes that very clear that no matter what they wanted to do, it was not up to them. Like the, the fate of his life was not in their hands. He had surrendered his fate to his father's hands. And that's the life of faith and submission and humility that Christ lived. Okay? Any comments or questions about all that? All right, and glory be to God forever. Amen.